You're listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Well, again, welcome to Roswell Presbyterian Church. It's great to be in this worship service with you this morning. We continue our sermon series, The Short Stories of Jesus, looking at Jesus' parables. Parable is a compound word, para, where we get the word parallel, it means alongside. And then balo, which literally means to throw. And a parable is a story that you throw alongside your life. It's meant to shine a light on your light, to illuminate it, to give you clarity about your own life and your place in the world. Within parables, there are some subgenres. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at the sower. We saw that that's a, a meta-parable, maybe. It's a parable about parables. Last week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's kind of an instructional story. It says that your neighbor is not who they are, but what they do. It's important not who you are, but what you do. And today, we're going to look at a parable of wisdom and folly. These are parables that kind of compare and contrast the wise life and the foolish life. And Jesus teaches us through our parable today that it's better to be a poor, wise person than a rich fool. So let us look now at Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Listen for the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, so Jesus turns to the crowd and says to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, And he thought to himself, what should I do for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we ask in the next few moments, you might be our teacher, that you by your spirit might speak a word only you can speak, that not my mere mortal words might be heard, but really your living word that can be spoken to our hearts by your spirit. Lord, that you might shine a light on our lives. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you knew when you were going to die, how would you change your life? If you knew when you were going to die, how would you change your life? That's the JFK question. How are you spending your life? You only have one life to live. Are you living like a fool? Building barns you'll never use? Building barns you don't need? 
This parable is a cautionary tale. It's a warning about not taking your life for granted. Be careful how you spend your days. Make them count by spending them on the things that last. Don't spend your time building barns you'll never use. Be rich towards God and not your possessions. In Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the only habit I can ever remember is begin with the end in mind. I've always wondered, though, how do you do that when you don't know when the end is? You know, see, I majored in business administration. And for my early life, basically my goal of life was this, to make a lot of money. And over the years... As I've lived and tried to live with the end in mind, that goal has begun to change. Shortly after graduating from college, a friend of a friend helped me get a job at a startup hospice company. It was my job to set up the physical hospital equipment in someone's home. The hospital bed, the commode, the oxygenator. I would set it up and I would service it as long as that person was on hospice, and as soon as they died, I would come and pick it up. And I'd been working for several months, and I was given the task of going to pick up some equipment at a house in Seattle. So I drove my van over there, I parked in the driveway, and I went and I knocked on the door. Man came to the door, he was about in his 40s. I think he was the son of the grandfather who had died. I said, I'm Jeff from Bellevue Healthcare, I'm here to pick up the hospital bed. And he said, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? He says, he's still in it. I said, alive? He said, no, dead. I said, oh, okay, I'll come back. And he almost turns around, but then he turns to me. He says, well, you know what? We could just put him on the couch. Okay. So we walk into the, the family room, and it's this beautiful house with these beautiful bay windows. It overlooks the sound. The light is shining in, and the family is gathered around Grandpa in the hospital bed. And there's the couch. And he says, why don't you get the feet? I'll get the head. And there, 22-year-old Jeff Myers was like, okay. And so I look down and I get him in the sheet and begin to lift. And on the radio, I kid you not, comes Amazing Grace. Amazing. And I, I, the absurdity of the situation, I just didn't know what to do with my emotions at that point. I'm trying just like to concentrate and not drop grandpa. And we put him on the couch. And I break down the hospital bed and drive off and said, that was weird. And that was the first time I ever touched a dead body. We don't encounter dead bodies much anymore. We prefer to hide them, forget them, avoid them. I wonder why. I wonder if they make us uncomfortable about the end. I wonder if they make us uncomfortable about all of the barns we're building. Luke says, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. This request from an un, 
known stranger comes to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Rabbis like Jesus, they were often called to weigh in on practical matters like this. Most likely the patriarch of the family had died, his son's in the crowd, and he wants Jesus' opinion. Now the law in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, speaks fairly directly to this situation. It says the older brother is to receive a double portion of the inheritance. But notice, Jesus doesn't even engage the question or the issue. He moves to an even more important point. He asks a question of his own. He says, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus turns to the crowd and says, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus says to be on our guard against greed. Why? Because greed is tricky. It finds a way to weasel into our hearts and then it presents us with a lie. Greed lies to you. That car you drive, yes, it reveals to everyone else who you really are. Your bank account, yes, that determines your worth. Your living space, if it was a little bigger and a little nicer, you'd be happier. If you just had another pair of sneakers, you'd have finally arrived. <laughs> I could go on and on naming all of the ways that greed tries to trick us into thinking that our physical possessions can offer us meaning, make us feel worthy, give us a sense of importance. I'm reminded of that line movie Fight Club, where Brad Pitt says, we don't own our stuff, our stuff owns us. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? Recent biography of the hip-hop collective, the Wu-Tang Clan, was recently published. I was listening to an interview with the author, and it reminded me of one of their most famous songs, Cream, C-R-E-A-M. It's an acronym, Cash Rules Everything Around Me. I once read an interview, I think it was in the Times, where one of the members of the group was asked, is cream cash rules everything around me? You guys grew up in poverty in New York, and now you've got success, you've got wealth. Is this an endorsement of a consumerist, bling kind of attitude? And he said, absolutely not. The message is cash rules everything around me, but it doesn't have to rule me. There is an ironic truth at the heart of that song. It's the same kind of irony that Bruce Springsteen uses in his song, Born in the U.S. of A. One's life, Jesus says, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And to illustrate this point, then, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a parable Parable is meant to explain, to illustrate why it's foolish to think your possessions will define your life. A rich man, his crops produce abundantly. And he says he has nowhere to store his extra crops. Seems to be that it never thinks, never crosses his mind that maybe he could give them away to those in need. So he makes plans to tear down his barns and build larger ones. And then he kind of talks to himself, looking in the mirror. He says, soul, 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But little does this man know that that very night his life will be demanded from him. And so Jesus asks, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? At the heart of this parable, this man reveals his foolishness because he thinks he can control the future. He thinks he knows how his life will play out. In the parable, four times, as Jesus tells us, the future tense is used in respect to this man. He says, I will do this. I will pull down my barns. I will store all my grain. I will say to my soul. He's saying, I will do this in the future. But he's forgotten the future is not guaranteed. He's a fool because he's not living with the end in mind. One of the great passages in literature that beautifully makes this point comes in Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Dubervilles. Hardy describes Tess, listen to this. She philosophically noted dates as they came past in the revolution of the year, her own birthday, and every other day individualized by incidents in which she had taken some share. She suddenly thought one afternoon that there was another date of greater importance than all of those, that of her own death, a day which lay sly and unseen among all the, all the other days of the year, giving no sign or sound when she annually passed over it, but not the less surely there. When was it? I remember the first time I read that, it sent a shiver up my spine. I never thought about that. We don't know when it is, and yet we pass over it once a year. And one of the central issues in the book for Tess is, will she become kind of obsessed with morbidity? Obsessed with the end, with death. Kind of like if you've ever seen Harold and Maude, like how Harold, you know, drives around in a hearse. He fakes his death all the time. Becomes obsessed with, no, that's not the point. The point is, does it wake you up to enjoy your life? To seek out what really matters? To spend your life on what counts? Live with the end in mind. Be rich towards God, Jesus says. It's a question that confronts us as well. Does the end force you to spend your life preoccupied with meaningless things, building barns you'll never use? Or do you spend it on things that matter? Spend your time, your energy, your effort on things that matter. When I worked in that hospice care provider in Seattle, sometimes I would visit a person many times before they died. And eventually then I would come after they had passed, and I would come to the apartment or the house to pick things up. And oftentimes, there would only be one loved one there. One time I went to this house, I showed up, and John met me at the door. He was an older gentleman, and I told him I was there to pick up the hospital bed from his partner who had just died. The body had been taken away. The funeral plans had been made. And John was there by himself, and he needed someone to talk to. And so that morning we talked. He told me his, about his life as an English professor, told me of their good memories of he and his partner traveling the world, having fascinating conversations, wild adventures. 
he told me about the funny things that had happened to them over the years. And then we talked about his partner dying. I asked him what happened. He said it was terminal cancer. But then with a glimmer in his eye, he said the shot of whiskey in his deathbed probably didn't help. John then asked me to come to his room. He says, I want to give you something. He says, my partner collected belt buckles and I want to give you one. I want to give you this belt buckle so that you'll remember this conversation. So that you'll never forget. And I said, oh, I'm so sad. He said, don't be. It was a beautiful life. And I keep that belt buckle to remember, to focus in on what really matters, to know we are not alone, to spend our lives with our loved ones, to contribute to the beauty of the world. Isn't that what every human being wants? Unfortunately, greed only separates us from people. It isolates us. It makes us think our stuff can fulfill us when it truly can't. Notice how the man in the crowd yells out to Jesus. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I wonder if Jesus recognizes the creeping greed in this man's voice. It is this kind of greed that often divides families when it comes to divvying up the inheritance. I'm sure we all know stories. Even in the parable, there are no references to the rich man's friends, the rich man's family. He's isolated by himself with his stuff and his barns. And barns he'll never use. We all have a decision to make. Will we own our stuff or will our stuff own us? Will we use our worldly wealth to foster and create true friendships? Will we use the time we have on earth to focus in on what really matters or will we spend our time building barns we will never use or will we be rich towards God? In our lives, occasionally we have a conversation, we have a, a moment of decision it's a time that really can set the trajectory of our lives. At the end of my six months at Bellevue Healthcare, the founder and owner of the company, a guy named Peter, super generous, said he wanted to take me out to dinner to say thank you. And so we had this great dinner and so came to the end and he pulls out this form. It looks like a contract with an envelope with a check in it. He says, Jeff, I know you want to go to seminary. But if you stay here and work, I'll give you $10,000. And I was like, that's a lot of zeros. And I thought, oh man, I, could, I had visions of like my face on Forbes magazine. And I was just, and then I heard that still small voice and said, Jeff, that's not what you're called to. I said, Peter, I'm sorry, man, I, I got to go to seminary. And he said, okay, Jeff. And so our paths diverged, but we stayed friends. And Peter was very, very successful. Built one of the fastest 50 growing companies in the state of Washington. He became very wealthy. And I went into ministry. <laughs> but I want you to know I learned a lot from him. Still to this day. There, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy as long as you use your wealth in the right way. To use it for good. Don't wait to build barns you'll never use. But use it to bless people. Jesus warns, be on your guard against all kinds of greed for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. 
Friends, let us live with the end in mind and be rich towards God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we pray that we might be rich towards you, that you might help us use our wealth, not for ourselves, but to build friendships, to help those in need, to contribute to the beauty in the world, Lord. Lord, help us to live with the end in mind. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.